But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by a filmmaker, an activist, an academic it is Simon Hunt, who you may also know as Pauline Pansdown. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks a lot, Cam. Good to see you. We've just had a visit to the colonies from, we've been graced with the presence of Kelly Jane Keane Minchell, aka Poser Parker. Could you, just for the benefit of any of our listeners who might have somehow avoided coming into contact with KJK, could you tell us a little bit about who this person was and why it was perhaps problematic that they were gracing us with their presence? Well, Kelly Jo Keane is, is an anti-trans activist from the UK, and it's very important that you said the colonies because, you know, essentially the way that the anti-trans activism has taken over the UK is really about the final death of the British Empire, the, the, the breakdown of the binary. You know, it's all sort of there. That's why it's working there, but perhaps not so much here. She's been at it for a few years. She's sort of like a celebrity anti-trans activist, and she differs from a lot of the others in that she's had very open contacts with, with far-right figures with anti-abortion organisations in the USA who have given her funding at times that she, this is perhaps becoming less common amongst them as the anti-trans movement that declares itself as feminism combines more with far-right neo-Nazi movements and the, uh, the American Christian evangelical right, that she's also has some problems with abortion. She doesn't think 16-year-old women should be able to access contraception. She raises conspiracy theories about the effectiveness of certain types of contraceptive pills and she's against abortion for anyone under 18. That's becoming less common amongst this group as it, as it becomes clear to most people, and I think most people around Australia, that this is actually not a feminist movement. She doesn't describe herself as a feminist. She uses a lot of loud and angry, abusive language, and she's a, she's sort of very much at the edge of the movement there in, in that even other gender-critical women, in other words, women who will not accept transgender people in any form or shape as, you know, they, they're sort of hardcore in a certain notion of biology even though they sort of misquote biology and, and mischaracterize. They constantly get pulled up by biologists on this. But due to her far-right ties, some very heavy racist comments against Pakistani people in the past and, and all sorts of things that even a lot of the gender-critical groups in the UK have rejected her and have broken ties with her. But someone being sort of racist and, and using anti-Semitic memes and, and memes from the far-right and things like that, that's been absolutely no problem with with the people who run the anti-transgender movement in Australia. They are just very happy to have a celebrity here. And also amongst the Australian leadership, there are some anti-abortionists, people who don't believe that women should really have control over their bodies. So it's been sort of an easy fit to, to it was seen as an easy fit to sort of bring her in here. I, I just think that they were not really ready for the, the utter rejection of this sort of politics and these deranged ideas from Australian women uh, as much as anything, I think that's really been the big thing here is that Australian women are not so easily fooled by these people. KJK was treading a well-worn path of the far-right grifter coming to Australia for the 
maybe to set up some lucrative speaking tour in the future, I guess you could say that it might have gone all a bit wrong. If you had to highlight one misstep, what would that be? Oh, my goodness, there's so many. So maybe I just have to pick a few a few highlights. Perhaps it was a 23-minute video talking about the genitals of the transgender son of the Tasmanian Greens leader. To, to me, that was the most extreme point. You know, she did a few tweets sort of like writing abusive and, and ridiculous conspiracy theories of medical disinformation about Cassie O'Connor's transgender son. But there was a 23-minute video where she talked about that the night before, after Hobart, the night before the Canberra one. And I just think that um, I'd like to get that one around a bit more because it just shows that this is not this, this is not a rational human being. Politics aside, we're dealing with someone who has some very, very deep problems here and is not really in a position to be advocating for anybody other than herself. And, uh, you know, I just think it was a lot of the things that were brought up as well, that she's talked about how she will annihilate women who don't support her, whether they're in the gender critical movement or not, that she always wins. She sort of has this, having spent some time in the US, she has the uses sort of a Donald Trump-like superlative language that, you know, I am always the winner, I never lose, and if you get in my way, I will annihilate you. So th- that's just two little ones, but I, I mean, there were plenty of high- there, there were plenty of, of other highlights during this sort of rather brief and unsuccessful tour. I, I did enjoy her yelling at the people of Hobart that uh, she was a homeowner, which they would never be. I, I don't know uh, if she had quite gauged how sympathetic people are to landlords at the it's moment. It's quite extraordinary for someone who's actually like 13 years younger than me. I just find her <laughs> her disgust at the, the way she was yelling at you. She, she was in, in Melbourne, she was screaming out, you stupid young women. I think that it seemed to be that the opposition of uh, – people who she regards as women being uh, cisgender women. But the, the the massive opposition to what she was doing in Australia by Australian women is, is something that seems to make her the angriest. You know, she uses a lot of sort of harsh and dehumanising language against transgender people all the time. But her, her, her real anger has been saved for the women who can see her for what she is. And, and to me, it sort of in some ways marks... As we move towards becoming a republic and moving towards greater recognition of Indigenous people in Australia, even though a lot of them are quite unsatisfied, you know, the model that has been put forward at this time, but we're in a period of change. And to me, the rejection, the utter rejection by um, Australian women of Kelly Jane Keane, apart from what is really a very a small group, you know, once you actually start to count them, it's possible to block them all on Facebook. There's only two or 300 people who, who are really into her in Australia. That it, it actually, in some ways, marks a, a sort of a, a step forward for the nation in, in a way, in that we are clearly no longer a, a, a British colony. Simon, what do you make of the media treatment of her tour? It seemed to go through different stages. Now, obviously, you had the the various branches of of, of the Murdoch press. Apart from you know a couple of renegades, you always get at news.com. But, you know, the big one, the Sky News, particularly, you know, as seen on YouTube and The Australian and all those have always played fully along with the the full gamut of medical, dangerous medical disinformation that comes from this group as well as, you know, total support. So that was absolutely no surprise. I noticed that for quite a while, really up until... Up until the 
the sort of the, the Nazi reunion, I call it, that happened in Melbourne, that the Guardian and the Nine group were very much taking care to, to just ignore the whole thing, you know, to just try and sort of keep it away. But it sort of bumped up as the, the rallies got, the opposition rallies got bigger and bigger and her crowds got smaller and smaller. And then, you know, the appearance of Thomas Sewell and his merry band in Melbourne, that once it came forward, then I think there's been some good, strong editorials by particularly some women journalists in there. I haven't been following everything in the last week to see how it goes, but that's, I think it was something where perhaps even a sensible way to sort of ignore this sort of stuff. But at the same time, it needed to be, I think in the, ultimately it's, there is a certain useful, usefulness to this tour in that it really has taken away the face of a particular part of the anti-transgender movement that puts itself forward as a, a feminist movement. And I think that that's really been damaged uh, irrevocably in Australia now. Uh, there's also been some political consequences following the tour, and I'm referring to the disciplining of MP Moore deeming for her appearance at the rally. What, what do you make of that situation? Well, the thing is that I don't think we've actually heard at this stage of what sort of concession she's agreed to make with. There's been some very mixed language coming out of what I've seen of that today. When you look at the 16-page PDF that John Bushido put forward as a reason to have her expelled from the party, that, yes, there was a mention of the way that she bad, you know, that there were Nazis there supporting the rally and that, she's, that she nevertheless stayed. But the bulk of it seemed to be that she had a very close relationship in an organisational sense and also a, a support, a direct support for Kelly J. Keane and her, her heavily documented far-right ties and actions and views, you know, didn't mention things like her rather disgusting, racist, anti-Islamic comments from the past. You know, I thought that was, that's, to me, that's a very, very important thing to be in there. But but at the same time, the language coming out of it is that she's made, you know, that she's made certain concessions, but we have not been told what those concessions are. And so, you know, it does at this stage look like a back down from John Pesciotto, which uh, I, I think ultimately means that this current Labor control of the mainland governments is going to continue for perhaps even a bit longer than we thought it would. Now, Simon, there are some in the queer community who think that they can have an LGB without the T. Now, I think it has to be said that without this milieu, I don't think I would have read the conspiracy theory that Tom Sewell's Nazis were just NIDA twinks in disguise uh, in their Kmart get-ups. But on the other hand, there may be a downside to such a school of thought. I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, the thing is that the LGB, the, the, the LGB movement is, is, is a fake movement. There are, there are some lesbian and gay people in there. They're predominantly people who already belong to other anti-transgender organisations. In this country, I, it really must be noted that, and as you can find this really out with Facebook statistics, that the vast majority of anti-transgender groups in Australia, 90% of the membership is from the UK. You know, it's, it, it is the sort of rather sad ends to colonisation that instead of, you know, Know, sending ships of people over to put pants on the natives in Africa that they're now just having to get, you know, piles of people signed up to Facebook groups and they're all from the UK. You know, 90% of the abuse that's coming back at people like Cassie O'Connor and the transgender women who have been leading the fight against this particular visit is that most of them are from the UK. You know, we have jokes about that there's certain times of day where it's where, you know, you need to lock down your account and, and have things in. It, it is, it's an insanity of the collapse of white supremacy and the colonial notions of the gender binary in the UK. You know, that's the heart of 
that that's the difference of the of the particular anti transgender movement in the UK as opposed to the US. I mean, they're, they're a funny group, the the, the, the anti trans people who pose themselves as, as feminists, in that they haven't really contributed much to the discourse because they're using medical disinformation from American Christian academia, you know, these bizarre sort of alternative organisations with these non peer reviewed papers. So they're relying very much on those, and then for their language and memes, they're relying on the far right. You know, there's very little that's actually come forward from the movement that poses itself as a feminist movement, apart from certain conspiracies about how transgender people are actually same-sex attracted people who are just going for an easier way, that the transgender men are actually like lesbians who don't feel comfortable with themselves. And it's, it's something that they don't even have made up non-peer-reviewed stuff about that. That's just something that's made up, you know. So they're fairly poor contributors in a way. But I'm sorry, I'm going to take it back to you talking about LGB, LGB groups. Look, there's been a lot of investigation in both the United States and the United Kingdom into the funding of these groups. It comes very much in the same way as the main anti-transgender groups. That there's a lot of funding from Christian organisations, particularly anti-abortion organisations, who are funding these. They're sort of housing them in these sort of Tory headquarters. There are some gay and lesbian people in there. There's a few people people who sort of get get pilled on it. I mean, obviously, the other aspect I haven't talked about, about it, of course, is, is that it's it's it has a QAnon-like belief structure. I mean, it's very much people who have been radicalised, which is why I never talk about the women who actually get up and speak at KJK events apart from Kelly Jane Keane, because those women are, are, are victims, really, as much as anybody. The, the, the main Melbourne speech that they've been sort of pushing that everyone needs to listen to is a woman who starts her speech by saying, I had to spend a lot of time during the pan- at home during the pandemic, and so I started looking at a lot of YouTube videos. That's how she starts the speech, and it sort of builds over 10 minutes into this extraordinary rant about how she's lost her entire friendship group, but she's found new friends amongst this group, and into the usual sort of screaming rant about, you know, 10-foot penises smashing their way through the windows of, of, of women's changing rooms. And it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs that you have these leaders of these anti-transgender trans groups who know that the information is false, who are really manipulating these people really badly. And it's the same thing with the LGB groups. They're they're mainly astroturf organisations. They're all completely anonymous. You don't have face leaders on it. They have a few, like they have some guy who, some sort of 80-year-old guy who was at Stonewall who sort of has actually turned and is talking about this. But there's a lot of falsification of, a lot of falsification of the history of the the gay, gay movements, lesbian movements and the gay and lesbian movements and their relationship with trans people there's a lot of very strong as someone who's 61 years old i'm someone who sort of fought in the 80s that fought to get aids and was an act up in the 90s and all that i saw we all know what happened <laughs> you know but they have these they have a couple of renegades who sort of talk about that that you know it used to it's actually one they stole from the christians the, the earlier parts of the anti-transgender movement in about 2017 2018 they used to the, the christian groups used to say it's the nuns who looked after you all when you were sick and dying on your beds but that's now been changed to the lesbians who took part in the in helping gay men during the AIDS crisis which was true we had a very strong coalition it was a lesbian gay bisexual transgender coalition and that's when we changed the name of all the organizations that's why myself and someone else named the filmmaker organization queer screen in 1992 for god's sake you know that that it was a time when communities actually sort of came together so it's it, it's a little too recent history for them to be sort of making up shit about, but yet they they persist. They just sort of bombard you with so much shit that they hope that some of it gets through, and unfortunately, sometimes it does. I think the good thing about this these LGB groups being 
largely fictional is I, I feel terrible for any bees that are in these groups because uh, <laughs> I don't know how much time they have before they're kicked out of the acronym too. There's but not no, a lot of love. No, they're, 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 that's actually happening. There's been a lot of talk about it the last couple of days that you're getting people, you know, they had a particular graphic they were using which had LGB, LGB and then like a, a pair of scissors and a line you can cut and then everything else to, to the right of that. But there's been quite a few, a few of those people in, in the last couple of weeks who've actually started, they've, they've actually moved the B to the right, you know. <laughs> so you now have LG, you know. It's, I, it's life's good. I also noticed just wading through the morass of anti-trans hate on Twitter that people like Ollie London, who's written a book about detransitioning, are sort of held up as paragons of this movement. And I couldn't help but notice that this is someone who was never actually trans. He's detransitioned from being a tabloid sort of freak show. He said he was going to transition into being Korean. But it suggests to me that maybe there's a, a lack of talent to draw from for these people. It's a shallow pool. I must say I do have a, an admiration for Ali because he's 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 sort of like he's done three or four switches over a twelve month period. In terms of the the grifting that's involved in here, which is you know a strong characteristic of particularly the Australian leaders of the anti trans movement, that that you know there's very few of them who've got jobs and the rest of them are after that, you know, waiting for the battles to come. But Ollie, you know, what a success story. I'm almost impressed by him. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Simon Hunt about Kelly Jane Keane. Simon, the, the tour hasn't gone spectacularly well, but do you think there's much potential for this movement to grow, especially given the successes that the anti-trans movement has had in places like the United States? I, I, it's something that would, is going to require great vigilance and we have not actually, um, we, we haven't won. I think I made a joke on Twitter the day after. It's like, oh, well, that's the end of the tour and that's the end of the anti-transgender movement. It's not. As I say, I think that there are, in Australia, it's, it, there's been significant success in a broader range of people realising that the things that transgender activists have been screaming for years, you know, five, six years, have become aware of them for the first time, have become aware of what terrible people, anti-transgender people are, how mean and nasty, and in particular, some pointing to their ties with the far right that go absolutely way beyond the appearance of Thomas and the Boys on Saturday. I mean, Thomas and the Boys were, you know, invaded a, a drag queen story time in Mooney Ponds, you know, only, only I think, six months ago and, and uh, managed to cause the cancellation of, a, of a, another children's event at the Pride Centre and, and some, some of their mates turn up in Manly and Sydney, you know, so it, it, it's like, and the people who the people who are have been calling out against drag queen story time are the same people as the Australian Christian Lobby. It's Curly Smith and Binary. It's you know your Catherine Deves, Maura Deeming, all these people who run ten organisations each and pretend they've actually got a movement. That they're you know they've been calling, and Thomas and the boys have been coming. So you, you know the relationship. It's like if you call out a children's event and tell people how evil, evil it is, and then a group of Nazis turn up with their flags screaming anti-Semitic stuff and trying to get it shut down in front of the children, you realise that, okay, next time I actually call out and call, make a call out against a drag queen story time, that the Nazis will turn up again. And it's happened three times now. So obviously we have amongst these people calling out drag queen story time a comfort with the fact that Nazis are invading children's events and terrifying families and children, you know. Because when it comes to drag queen story time, you know, I think people need to talk a, bit, a little bit more about why that actually exists is that you have a great diversity of families in Australia and you have people with young trans, trans children, you have families with trans parents, you have families with gay and lesbian parents, and that often 
these people and their children are not comfortable in situations where it's just like a general children's event. And so these have been created. These have been created in order to provide a safe space for all Australian families and children. And yet, you know, it's like, well, you create a safe space to keep people away from us. We're going to come and attack it. And we're going to call on people to come and attack it. And we're going to spread disinformation about it. And so, you know, to me, it's like that's something that I think is a bit of a next step that needs to be dealt with and that we need to actually have state-based laws prohibiting people from protesting within a certain, you know, based on the, for example, the abortion clinic safe zones, which have, you know, which is recent legislation in all states in Australia, as in the last, over the last 10 years, gradually, and just ban people from protesting verbally, verbally or physically against a children's event in the presence of children. Like, I don't care if it's a drag queen story time or if it's Sunday school. Like, I don't think Sunday schools are safe space for children but i'm not i'm not you know an absolute maniac who's going to go down there and protest in front of the children about it you know like i don't think that should be allowed simon a lot of people have mentioned to me that they met young people at the protests against kelly j Keane who said you know this was their first protest i was wondering what do you think young activists can learn from perhaps older generations within the queer community and what can older queer activists learn from these younger generations i'd like the old the older activists really to look at younger people and see what's actually happening within our culture, that we do have a moving, changing culture, and, and, and to really look at the acceptance. I mean, the anti-trans activists look at that and they go, oh, they're just all naive and they've been, you know, they've received propaganda in their schools and, and that, that whole sort of fight and things like that. But I think most people will look at that and see that um, there is actually a broadening of, you know, people who believe in live and let live and accepting difference amongst their peers at school, which is really what all these movements, particularly in relation to schools and education, have been about, so that everyone can actually concentrate and get educated and make friends and get ready for life. And just because somebody, another kid is gay or black or transgender or whatever, that that's, you know, that you accept that sort of difference. And that's why you put that sort of stuff in the educational material. It's a simple sense of inclusion and it's not propaganda to make you into something else. So I think that's what older activists can, older activists just need to look and sort of see what's happening. Younger people, I think, you know, it, it'd be, it's, it's good for people to point out that there's nothing new in this anti-transgender movement except perhaps some of the unusual alliances that have occurred. But we have the same, we have the same sort of conspiratorial thinking, demonization that, you know, most of the, most of the tropes against transgender people are currently from the far right that, you know, that these people are pedophiles that there's you know stuff about blood involved it, it, it just it's just a direct read out of uh, out of classic anti-semitism it's a it's, it's a, the fight over the toilets is a direct read out of segregated toilets in the united states the actual the organization martin luther king formed uh, the the naacp the national association of advancement for colored people they put out a, a fantastic court submission four or five years ago when when things started to ramp up with the bathroom situation where they just did all these side-by-side comparisons of toilet segregation according to race and what was being done and how the methodology was the same, that this is a mere repeat. So there's nothing new in the anti-transgender movement from other fascist movements. There's, no, there's nothing new here except perhaps the success of the, the success of the conspiracy thinking that's actually created a movement of people 
who, some of whom the followers truly believe that they're part of a feminist movement. You know, it might be led by racists. It might be led by people who are anti-abortion. It might be led by people who are really trying to get people to act according to patriarchal norms. And, you know, there, there may be actually nothing in there that relates to the history of feminism, but they still believe that they're part of a women's rights movement. And that's, that's, Perhaps the unique part of this in that you have a what's happened, you know, and it's the same thing that's happened with, to a certain extent, climate denialism and anti-vaxxers, except it's actually much smaller number of people. But it's generally a wealthier cohort with more sort of access to that, particularly from the angle of the medicine and science material being being sourced and written and non-peer reviewed under wealthy groups of Christians in the United States. And that stuff sort of flows out to the UK and to Australia and around the world that, that, you know, there's a, a strong money aspect to things that has actually enabled, um, you know, it's, it's really one of the greatest successes of conspiracy theories, but it's, it's something that when you sort of hold it into the light, people can, can see it. And I, I, I have, I have a confidence that in Australia that, that, that this is being held up to the light. That this is the start of it being held up to the light. We need to actually talk a lot more, you know, after this event sort of dies down about the medical disinformation and be able to map that, you know, that like, I'll, I'll just give you a tiny example of, of this disinformation network that you have a, the, the peak organization of pediatricians in the United States is the American Academy of Pediatrics, which contains 99.26% on current readings. I checked them today of pediatricians. And then you have this tiny little organization called with a similar name, there's always a similar name, the American American College of Pediatricians, which has 500 members, they make up 0.74% of pediatricians. One of the reasons Australia is so misinformed in terms of, I think generally, genuinely a lot of Australians think there's a lot of debate about transgender people and what is the correct treatment. But this tiny group, the 0.74%, were, were exclusively the pediatrician organisation quoted by Bernard Lane and the Australian over a five-year period, you know, again and again and again, the American College of Pediatricians that come up again and again and again. It's using this tiny, tiny, tiny little, little group who split off from the main organization because they were Christians and they were opposed to gay couples adopting children in 2002. And they're also an anti-abortion organization. They call the American Psychological Association a gay affirming program. But this is this was has been placed and in not just pediatrics, but also in medicine and psychology. Bernard Lane and the Australians been quoting these minor groups. I mean, that is much, much smaller than the anti-vaxxer groups or the small group of doctors against vaccination. Or it's much, much smaller than the climate denialists. But it's it's the small it's the smallest conspiracy that has really ever been pushed by the far right, the combined you know far right with the the American Christian evangelicals. But has yet had the greatest. The, the greatest success, which is essentially about Christian money. Now, Simon, at the Canberra Let Women Speak rally, we saw famous feminist Pauline Hanson. Now, I seem to recall in the 90s, you tried to let Pauline Hanson speak and she she sued Triple J to stop it. Uh, what did you make of Pauline Hanson's involvement in all of this? I think, you know, one of the reasons that I I mean, it's it's sort of weird uh, that 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 you know that I that I did that song with I did two songs with Pauline Hanson twenty five years ago, and yet I'm still maintaining the avatar to sort of um, fight on, on, on political fronts and all that. One of the reasons I don't really deal a lot with Pauline Hanson anymore is that she's essentially a follower now. You know that she'll jump onto whatever right wing bandwagon is coming along. She's no longer really a leader. Ever since uh, a lot of what was seen as outrageous uh, of the things that she was talking about twenty five years ago 
are you, you know um, quite deeply embedded in the in, in the, uh, the the major conservative parties in Australia. Um, you know, she, she she just jumps on the back of things. So it's just it's really just it's really just the later things that has. She's sort of a rather sad follower. You know, there was a, I think she had a first go at it about two or three years ago when she was talking about you know these books teaching young girls to masturbate. She actually said masturbate, which I thought was unusual and of course you know every time she says anything uh, people writes me and say do another song <laughs> but you know yeah oh, look i think she's just another bandwagon follower there obviously mark latham's a little bit more organized in that and the way that he's uh, sort of harnessing the new, uh christian christian right anti-trans uh sort of movement that seems to be emerging in sydney but yeah no she's really she, she's she's really just a follower there was nothing in particular that i'd even want to quote from what she said there it seems that your good friend, the Reverend Fred Nile, has finally left the New South Wales Parliament. I'm wondering, have you sent him a sympathy note yet? And do you think we'll ever see his like again? Fred sort of, um, well, we are seeing we are seeing Fred's like again, just with a lot more money behind it, you know. Fred was Fred was there sort of doing doing his own thing pretty much by himself for a while, though obviously sort of modelling himself on Mary Whitehouse from the UK when it, when Fred first started in the 70s and 80s, which perhaps could be seen as a form of drag. I, I, I think I, I think we're seeing worse than Fred now. <laughs> we're seeing, uh, because it, it, it's it, Fred was at the time really quite unusual in, in terms of someone foregrounding their Christianity in opposite, in a cultural war sense and as opposed to gay people. And, and he was a very important figure, particularly in, in, in New South Wales in the, in the 80s, I'd say, was really his peak, sort of, and leaning into the 90s when he started a few conspiracies around AIDS. Yeah, we've uh, we are seeing people like Fred Nile again. They're just more organ. They're just more organised, and there was always, a, in some ways, an acknowledgement by Fred that he was speaking on behalf of speaking on behalf of a certain cohort of people, and that he would criticise Christians who disagreed with him and things like that. So he, he perhaps uh, Fred even had like a a little more of a respect for the notion of, of separation of, of church and state as opposed to really a growing Christian, you know, worldwide, uh, world, worldwide in, in English-speaking countries at least, of, um, of Christian nationalism. And I don't think Fred ever sort of quite made it to that point or perhaps he never dreamed that it could actually uh, sort of reach that point. Simon, if you could perhaps indulge me in a slightly nerdy question. When you first began creating audio cut-ups, the process that you went through was fairly laborious, you know, splicing physical tape together. Uh, in the subsequent decades, we've seen advances in technology that have made that sort of thing significantly easy to create. And even now in 2023, the, you know, there are tools that use AI so you can create words in a person's voice that were mm. never spoken. I was just wondering if you had a take on the impact of this sort of deep fake technology as it relates to both art and activism. Well, deepfake is uh, um, deepfake and, and AI technology already. Obviously, it's it's both a wonderful thing and a terrible thing. <laughs> it's sort of uh, it, it can, in terms of authoritarianism, it can make you sort of fearful of, of the way that they might try and it could lead to sort of uh, uh, further uh, attempts to uh, 
control information and then it's always of course about who's drawing the line on what is information and disinformation culturally artistically um i think it's a wonderful thing you know i would have i would have liked to have not spent 500 hours on cutting up <laughs> Pauline hansen's voice for for the first and second song i did with her but i think more significantly and culturally that you see i'm very enamored with the the media nows of of uh, younger people these days in that the the what i was working with essentially even you know like when i did the first Pauline Hansen song we really had we had a bit of public radio and stuff like that but then we just had these four or five television stations there was no internet or is in very it was in a very nascent stage and not sort of broadly available to people is that you know that we jump 25 years and i'm very impressed with the the way that young people are critique media out within their they they know when they're quoting something they know when they're cutting something together that they sort of create memes from each other and sort of imbue meaning and uh, imbue political meaning into um, ongoing sort of volleys of ideas that go back and forth in in TikTok trends and things like that. And so in, in in essence it's just another tool for that. I mean disinformation can go around in in any form that you actually want it to. But you know, I'm I'm just incredibly pleased to you know because with me with the whole uh, Pauline Pantstown thing was that it was fascinating to me because you know like I was a, I was a media lecturer at the time and it was like a, this this childish game to sort of play with like you know working with a mainstream and sort of uh trying to imitate certain things but change others about her and treating different parts of the media differently according to us you know to me it was like this big sort of childish game in a way and i'm just excited to see that the access to media you know i don't want to over overstate that we still have media conglomerates who control large parts of of, of people's thinking particularly the the murdoch empire but i i just I'm very excited to watch the media knowledge of 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 young people and the ability to use particular both digital and analog tools to create critique and to put their own voice forward and to become and to become famous within those within those sort of zones people make fun of you know people building up TikTok followings or YouTube followings or whatever and and you know I I I think that it's actually giving us a a broader range of people both good and bad you know but um <laughs> it's 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 interesting in a media it's interesting in a media sense we've recently seen a work of activism on your behalf a work of deep empathy with the, the ribbons at St Mary's Cathedral i was wondering how do you foster care joy and resilience in your activism both for yourself and for your community it sort of came out of the blue with that one i mean i just so quickly like the way i came to that was that 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 um you know i'm not a child sexual abuse survivor when i um but you know i obviously followed the royal commission and everything so very very closely and, and have have a lot of people as we all do people around us who were affected by child sexual abuse particularly in relation to to religion and it was just to, to me it was it was the the blast of the blast uh, from the murdoch empire of of editorials which essentially attempted to hide pearl's gross actions over several dec- over several decades to uh to hide uh, uh child sexual abuse um you know as documented and i think they knew they could get away with it because of the way that uh the volumes about george pell and bathurst um really you know came years after because of the court cases that he'd had about his own particular case uh, but they felt they could just talk about they could just go 7 to 0 high court 7 to 0 concentrate on pell's personal case and ignore you know the thousands of the thousands of 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 people who were affected by his uh, inaction in relation to multiple pedophile priests over three dioceses and so 
that's why I started, I started putting up ribbons. You know, I just started going every day and, uh, and putting them up myself on St. Mary's and the lead up to that. And, and then the, um, then the funeral got delayed for two weeks and I thought, oh my God, I don't know if it's actually going to sustain itself that long because other people were starting to do it, but they were getting pulled down, pulled down, pulled down. And then our church, uh, a cathedral insider explained to me that the reason they delayed Hell's uh, Sydney funeral for, for, for two weeks was that it was going to save them money. They had a big uh, gathering of high-ranking Catholics from around the world in, in Suva about two days after the day that they eventually made the funeral. So it was actually, it was they just kept George on ice for a couple of weeks in order to save some money for um, airfares for people to get to this to go straight from the funeral to Suva, <laughs> which which tells you which tells you which tells you a lot essentially. But I just got to say that through that because once the the two guys, the two Ballarat survivors, uh, Paul and Trevor, joined with me, and we started to make a a joint project in the five days leading up to the actual funeral. That I was really deeply moved. It's the most emotional interaction with politics I've ever had in that, you know, pretty much everybody who was putting ribbons up was personally affected or was, um, you know, a family member of someone who had been affected. And the stories that were being told, people talking about their lives, it was um, an incredibly emotional experience for me. And this is not like an activist thing that I'd planned, but it was a beautiful day on the day before Pell's funeral. And we cut, we actually covered half of the churches, the cathedral fence with that. And I think that a lot of the people there and other people told me that that was a very, very empowering thing for them. And particularly when we got the agreement finally, after having had a separate meeting with them days before where they just said, no, we're going to keep pulling them down. That actually said, um, look, I want you to know that we're keeping them all in a big bag in my office, but and we're going to do something very special with them after the funeral. <laughs> and, um, you, know, you know, and then they turned around on the actual day and said, no, they can stay up. And, I, you know, the, the, the general manager called me over and said, Simon, I've got some news. We, you know, we, we, we're going to leave them up, but we don't want you to do these last few panels because they didn't want survivor ribbons um, in the TV shots of the coffin coming in so that you'd have George Pell's coffin with ribbons in the background. So they didn't want everyone to do these last few panels, but then everyone did them anyway. You know, people were just refusing to obey that direction, you know. But then, of course, the Christian Lives Matter guys sort of came in at nighttime and pulled them down, and there were there were uh, members of the security staff at St Mary's Cathedral who took their armbands off and joined in pulling the ribbons down. So, you know, I guess um, <laughs> the Christian Lives Matter boys, uh, you know, they they decided that they knew better than the than the church itself. So that was a very sad moment, but I think I, I do think it was felt as a significant achievement um, as an action by um, by the child sexual abuse survivors who actually took part. I was somewhat struck by the irony of the Christian Lives Matter people sort of pulling down the survivor ribbons, you know, one day and then a few weeks later engaging in this sort of anti queer pogrom. Uh, it almost became yelling about protecting children as they sort of rained fists and water bottles down on the, the poor people that had dared to come within a, you know, a few blocks of a church. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Charlie Backhouse's offsider who stands with him at all the protests, um, a guy called Chris, who I don't think is actually on, on the radar of everyone at the moment. He's sort of a connection between uh, the guy they've arrested, Christian Suka, and Charlie Backhouse, who just seems to sort of put himself forward as a T-shirt salesman for the group these days. But um, the connection between this is this guy, Chris, and he, he, um, he, took, he was one of the 
people who who pull the ribbons down. But he also came up. He came up to um, Paul Ausschattel, you know, sixty five year old abuse survivor from Ballarat. One day when we were doing the ribboning there and was incredibly threatening and violent and got right in Paul's face and his wife sort of came along and they had these two kids in the car. You know, a hot day, 35-degree day, they had the car windows up and these two little kids, five, six years old, one of them holding up a picture of the Virgin Mary and the other one holding up a crucifix, looking at us, pointing to them. They'd sort of been given a, an acting task while the devil abused us. And so I thought, really thought Chris was going to punch Paul at some stage. I was sort of really worried about, you know, it's a bit for a 30-year-old man to punch a 65-year-old man in the face. Um, it, but the violence didn't actually take place. But it, it, there was a few moments of trying to sort of negotiate it. And, and what it seemed is that they all had a confusion between the um, the uh, rainbow the uh, the rainbow um, activist group who led the rally that on the actual funeral day against them and the rainbow looking ribbons on the church and they didn't actually know about the movement of child sexual abuse survivors but they said it was all about pedophiles and when and when you look at the videos of um, all the guys pulling down the ribbons at night time with their stanley knives and sort of you know people got burns on their hands when they were trying to stop them taking the ribbons off and they were just screaming at everyone that you're pedophiles and they were cutting down ribbons that each represent a survivor of uh, child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. So it's, it's you know, it's a big, it, it is a big disinformation network. Most of those guys, um, it's interesting actually, they're not using a lot of the uh, the language and the fake science from um, the, the Christian arm of the anti-trans movement. They're using a lot more of the the neo-Nazi memes and the, and, and, and the abuse and the stuff that's created on, you know, that was created on 8chan and stuff like that. And it's it's ironic that that it's people have sort of obviously focused on the the physical attack and the people being injured at, at Belfield outside the church by these guys. But um, one of the most ironic things is that they, the week before that, on the Saturday, at precisely the same time as the Melbourne rally, you had the neo-Nazis standing on the steps of, of Melbourne Parliament House holding up a sign that said, destroy pedo freaks. And at exactly the same, the meeting was at the same time. And you had these enormous collection of radicalized Christians, radicalized Catholics in Hyde Park and Sydney holding up a big sign that said LGBTIQ pedophilia. That was, it was, it was simultaneous. It was simultaneous, you know, and it's weird. So it's not, in some ways, it's not really different branches, you know, and I think people need to look at the complicity of um, uh, particular bishops in Sydney and uh, the archbishop himself in, in the way that this uh, information is, is moved around. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a scary moment. But as I say, I remain confident that it's not something that's going to you know. I just want to get rid of it as, as quickly as possible so that my trans and gender diverse friends can just like get about their fucking lives. Simon, reflecting back on many decades of uh, activism around various issues, what do you think? What have you discovered in terms of uh, possibility for change? And what do you think are the limitations, perhaps? with artistic or, or cultural-based practices in terms of advancing social change? I think there's a constant change in, in, in method methodology that's required according to the, according to the you know, that you, you always need to regard the method of, of the dissemination of propaganda and disinformation and that constantly changes and it needs to be faced in various ways, you know. Like when I did Pauline Pants Down, you know, sort of 25 years ago, that was really about that there was a very limited mediascape and so that I wanted to sort of create myself as as a, a sort of a simulacrum and, you know, in exactly that same space but say different things and sort of shift it in some ways as well as 
in some ways being the clown of sort of providing a, a relief against people who are affected by that. But something that like that, you, you know, doesn't really work right now. It's, you know, obviously there are ways of working with humour and stuff like that. I'm just sort of being older, being a bit more sort of hardcore and just, just trying to stop things, you know. I want I want it all to stop as quickly as possible in, in whatever way, I guess, I you know, transformed into uh, more of a, more of a direct activist, but it's really it, it's really about pinpointing the dissemination of of disinformation of various types. That there is sort of an, an entertainment factor in the way that that's sort of presented with people. You know that you need to take it. The anti-trans movement is actually so broad and multifaceted that it needs to be given to people in in bite-sized pieces. That we need to actually acknowledge the changing dissemination of, inf- of information. You know, that, like I'll go back to TikTok again. That you have these sort of, you know, thirty-second, one-minute things, which, which are apparently statistically like oh, that's a way that a lot of people in their in, in their teens and twenties receive the news. They actually get the news from TikTok, and it's given to, it's given to people in a, a a sort of a you know a brought down a bite-sized entertainment format. And that I think we need to acknowledge with a change in media that things need to be approached in a certain way and fed back in a certain way and corrected in a certain in a certain way that acknowledges the mediascape as it is. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you online, you're on Facebook at Pauline Pantsdown as well as on Twitter at P Pantsdown. Thanks for coming on. That's correct. I'm not on Instagram. If you see something there, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> one too many. One too many. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me, guys. No worries. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. I have begun to judge homosexuality indulgently. I would object to festival of darkness, 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 festival of darkness. You're a homosexual. Good, 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 good. That's a natural alternative to a morally unbalanced heterosexual society. We do have mentally unbalanced heterosexual society. We're trying to promote homosexual marriages, prostitute lust, lesbians embracing. We're trying to promote homosexual marriages, prostitute lust, lesbians embracing, and thereby putting our society at risk. And it works. There's no discrimination. And it works. There's no discrimination. There's no Jesus is a prostitute, rubbing his face on Judas's hands and so on. You put the boot in the
Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. 